today is a tough message. It's a simple text. It's easy to read. We've heard things about it before. But Brian said last week, the gospel changes everything. But has it? Or are you pretty much the same struggling with the things you always have and, and kind of the gospel is a little added piece into your life, but it hasn't really fundamentally made you different? Are the people that know you know something's different about you, or are you pretty much the same as always? It's just you have the capability of being good if you want to be. So the gospel really does change everything. The question is, are you letting it change you? So we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the proper attitude of Christian servants. The attitude that we all should have, and the attitude we're going to find in Philippians chapter 2, particularly in the first two verses. Before we read God's word and before we get into this message that God has given me, let's bow together in prayer. Now, Father, as we look into your word, help me, your servant today, to give the words the way you want them given, to have the right context. May our minds be able to comprehend what's being said. And as the Spirit of God works in us, may our hearts be willing to do it and to live it. Help us to be attentive and to make personal application wherever we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 read like this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. That's a very difficult thing to do in a society where we're taught to be independent where we're taught to make things happen for ourselves, where if it's to be, it's up to me. And even though there's some good thoughts in that philosophy, it's not really biblical. A lot of things happen that aren't up to me. And a lot of things need to happen because of what's up to God through me. We just have to rethink that. We have to have a new mind in us. We can't just go along depending on our training, education, experience, intelligence. We can't depend on those things because they lead us in the ways of the world. We have to go beyond that to the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 4, which is just a book past this, it's not in the notes, but I really wanted to just share a little bit of this with you. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 1 through 5, we have these words. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. Paul was in prison in Rome. Has anybody been to that prison beside me? Let me describe it to you. When I was there, it's like a huge hewn rock, kind of curved, and it's open on one side uh, with a ceiling above it where you can see outside. And there is a cap, about two, two and a half feet in diameter, a lid that they 
removed, and for us, we were able to go down in it. So you go down in it, and there's another rock, another surface all chipped out, a big area, probably 12 feet wide, but only about this tall, so you could never stand up. You could stretch out, you could kneel down, sit down, but you could never stand up. The thought of that makes you claustrophobic, doesn't it? You could never stand up. And this is where Paul was when he wrote this in Ephesians and Philippians. He says, I'm a prisoner for serving the Lord. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Now, he says that again over here. We're to have an attitude of unity. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Why, of course there is. It's a rhetorical question. Of course there's encouragement. But are you acting like it is? You see, the church in Philippi was having divisions. They have lost their focus. They have forgotten about being a family in the Lord. And instead, they are focusing on what's different about each other, what somebody looks like how somebody speaks, how that person could not agree with me and what I think. He says, refocus, refocus. In Colossians 3, he says, since you're then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you're dead to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. That's Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. That's our focus. When you lose that focus, then you start noticing and picking all the little things about each other you don't like. You just ignore people. You don't even know who they are. I mean, really, do we really know each other in here? Are we really family? If we ask for help, are we admitting that we failed at something? Or do we just go to the family and ask for help? Some people do. Most of us would consider that an admission that I can't handle it, which means I don't want God's help through his family. So is there any encouragement in Christ? That's his first thought. Of course there is, if that's who your focus is. Is there any comfort in his life? Of course there is, if you believe that he first loved you before he loved, we loved him. Of course there is. Is there any fellowship in his spirit? Of course there is. The spirit of God indwells us if we know him as Savior. God is in us. Of course there's fellowship together in the spirit. Because you recognize the Spirit of God in each other. I mean, what would you really be like if the Spirit of God weren't in you? When you received Christ as your Savior, did people notice a change in your life? Was it because you reformed? Or is it because the Spirit of God instantly took up a dwelling in your heart and started changing the way you thought 
and what you wanted and what your plans were? Are your hearts tender and compassionate is his next thought. Are they tender and compassionate? Do you favor each other, Heritage Community Church family? Do you favor each other? Do you look forward to being here and seeing each other as a family? Do you sit over there because there's another person over there you try to avoid? How's that work at home? Not doesn't work for long, does it? Or it ends up in divorce. We don't have that choice in the church family. We are to prefer one another. Preferring means respecting to the point where, no, you go first. Oh, we signed up for this same place at this same time. You go ahead and take it. Oh, this is where you park? I'm sorry, I'll pull over here. Oh, that's where you normally sit? Sorry, I'll move over here. That's called preference, preferring one another. I love you enough that I'm willing to give up my little preferences so that you can have yours. That takes a godlike quality to do that. We're not in a society that believes that. It's my personal, individual rights come first. No, they don't. Not in God's family. Your personal rights come before mine. He loved me so much. Look what he did. Verses 3 and 4. Look what he did. Look what Jesus did. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others also. So when you're selfish, what you're saying is, selfishness doesn't always mean me. Sometimes it just means you're messing up my plans. I have things all scheduled today. I don't have time to talk to you. When someone wants to talk to you and they say, well, I was going to contact you, but you were too busy, that's God telling you, yes, you are. If you don't have time for the family, you've got to change what you're doing. We all need each other. We all have different talents and gifts and spiritual gifts that he's given to us so that we can help each other and work together and be strong in the Lord. Selfishness is, I'm not sharing my talents with you. Trying to impress others. Selfishness. I'm old enough, you know, I have a lot of stories. I was sitting and working in the driveway of the parsonage where we were living in Derry, New Hampshire. I think I had just my bathing suit on. And I was washing the car. Saturday afternoon, late in the afternoon. The car drives in the driveway. I look up thinking, oh, no. A young couple gets out, and she comes up to me and introduces herself as a member of such and such a church who I knew about, knew the pastor. And this is my boyfriend, 
fiance who would, we would like to get married. He is not a Christian. I'm thinking, oh, this is hard. I'm holding onto a hose with running water in my bathing suit. Why did you pull in here? And I'm thinking, should I say, I, I have, let's make an appointment. You can come back and see me. And the Spirit of God convicted me, saying, put your stupid hose down, turn the water off, and go in and change your clothes. So I invited them into my office, did that, came back, asked the Lord for forgiveness, and sat down and started talking with them. And after a few minutes, it became clear that he wanted to receive Christ, but had never had an opportunity. And right there in my office, he bowed and prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart. His name is Raymond. A year or two later, when we left that church to go to another place out in New York State, I heard he was doing really well, had become strong in the church. We came back to visit two or three years later, and he's a deacon in the church. What if I'd said, I'm sorry, but I got to finish washing my car? What if I'd done that? That was like the Lord just slapping me and saying, Shame on you. Shame on you. When I was a youth minister, there was a 40-something-year-old lady that got saved, completely, radically changed and excited and telling everybody, almost obnoxiously, just, oh, it's just so exciting. And her 17-year-old daughter, likewise, came to our youth group and totally turned the whole thing upside down. She was so dynamic. And one Sunday after church, she said, I'd like my younger daughter to talk to you. My wife and daughters had just gotten in the car and left with somebody else to go out for dinner. And I'm thinking, this is not a good time. I'm hungry too. Couldn't there be another time? And I looked at this girl and tears were coming down her face and I thought, there can't be another time. We went into the office she sat down, and I led her through the plan of salvation. She received Christ. Once again, the Holy Spirit smacked me and said, you fool. I put this person in your path. Don't eat dinner instead. That's selfishness. Don't try to impress others, he says. Talent is not given to us to show people how talented we are. Intelligence is not given to us so we can get the highest scores and make sure everybody knows it. This is what I found being a teacher many years. The bright people assist the slower people to catch on and understand things. The slower people assist the bright people to hold on and be patient and don't get angry if somebody doesn't agree with you right away. You need both. 
When you isolate the intelligent people, they don't get along too well. They're always arguing and struggling and trying to correct each other, criticizing each other. When you isolate the slower people together, they're offended by everything and everybody, and they offend everyone. So you need to mix, and that's the way it is in family, isn't it? We're all different. We all have to work together. We're not to try to impress each other. He says we're supposed to be humble, thinking of others as better than ourselves, verse 3. We're supposed to be humble, thinking of others better than ourselves. How many people do you think are better than you? Or does nobody quite measure up? Do you believe all the nice compliments people gave you about you? You know what General Douglas MacArthur said? Don't be too impressed with yourself. And then we're supposed not to look out for our own interests, verse 4, but take an interest in others as well. Does anybody know what's going on in the lives of anyone else in this family? Does anybody know how many people are in very difficult circumstances? I'm looking around today, and there's some people I don't see here that I wish were here. But I think I know why, because they're struggling. And they don't feel part of the family when they're struggling. They feel like, now that I'm struggling, I need to step back because I don't really feel like I should be burdening people and things. And that's exactly the opposite. God wants us to run to the family when we need assistance and help so that the gifted people with the gift of helps and the gift of patience and, and the gift of giving and the gift of leading can help. Here's the example. This is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, verses 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. Here's what it says. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Oh, my goodness. God did that? Yes. We really can't comprehend that because we could never really take that position. See, Christ was God and man. So as God, he could do something like that. As man, he could suffer and die and feel the pain and everything just like we. That process of emptying himself to come to earth to be like us is called the kenosis. It's a Greek word that means emptying of attributes and qualities. What did he empty himself of? Power. Whatever he did on this earth, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the deaf. Those were all done in the power of the Holy Spirit because he limited his godlike power by coming to earth. 
So seven steps down, this is called, the seven steps down of God through Christ to man. One, he emptied himself of his reputation. What was Jesus' reputation? He's the creator. In Colossians 3, it says, he created all things, and through him all things exist. Did you know Jesus is the one that said, let there be light? Jesus did that. So how does the Trinity work? Well, you have God the Father that's the conceiver. God the Son that's the doer. And God the Holy Spirit, that's the empowerer. The idea, the action, the power to do it. So what did he empty himself of? He's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. You know, when I was studying science in college, one thing that baffled scientists was if you took the Bohr model or the quantum model of the atom and you looked at how you have the nucleus of protons and neutrons and you have the electrons orbiting around at the speed of light, what keeps them from going on their own out there somewhere? Why do they stay in orbit? They can't figure that out. There's no magnetic attraction that does it. What keeps them in there? Christian scientists have concluded that in Colossians 3 where it says, by him were all things created and in him all things consist. The word consist in the Greek means are glued and held together. We believe Christ holds atoms together. That's why all things exist the way they are. He is holding it in his hands, so to speak. So he emptied himself of his reputation as creator. Unbelievable. Could we do that? Could you go from being president CEO to being a mailroom clerk and walk around seeing all the people you used to command and they're, they're now looking at you differently and kind of saying, what happened to you? In a similar way, but not exactly the same, Christ comes to earth. The plan was he would take on himself the form of a servant, a slave. He would be obeying God's commands, not acting as God, obeying God's commands. As a slave obeys the master and just does what he's told. Three, he was made in the likeness of a human being, which is very limiting to God. God is not limited by time and space, and he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Coming to earth and taking on the form of a man limits him greatly. He lived on the earth, which is a cursed environment. After the fall, the earth took a huge hit, so to speak. It tilted 23 and a half degrees off its axis, which is why we have tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and storms and clouds and rain and lightning and thunder. And at some point when Christ comes back on the second coming, he's going to straighten that back up and everything's going to be paradise again like the Garden of Eden. He came to that cursed earth knowing he was going to suffer, be criticized, beaten, not believed, 
5, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Although he was equal with God, co-equal as a trinity, he took himself a humble position of obeying the Father. Six, he died for our sin. He took our place. He was crucified innocently. He shed his blood like a lamb would have been slaughtered in the sacrifices for our sin. Somebody said, well, how could he die for me? He didn't know me. Oh, yes, he does. Did you know that God created you in his mind before he made the earth? Read Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, and it tells you how that happened. Seven, he was crucified on a cross, a criminal's punishment. Nobody died on the cross unless they were a criminal. So here's an innocent man, falsely accused, who had been with God the Father, but had limited his qualities to come back to earth. Now he's dying like a criminal for you and me. Those are called the seven steps down that God took through Jesus Christ to earth to meet us at our point of need. That's called the kenosis. But right after that, there's seven steps up. It hasn't happened yet. It says, therefore, God elevated him, verse 9, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because of all the obedience that took place, God now elevates Christ to the highest honor. It hasn't happened yet. He's in heaven with the Lord, with God. But when Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming, which is after the rapture of the church, after the great tribulation, then Christ comes back at his second coming. Well, why isn't the rapture the second coming? Because he doesn't come to earth. He only comes to the atmosphere and calls us up to meet him in the air, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. At the second coming, he comes and sets down and touches down and lands on earth and walks in eastern Jerusalem on the dome of the rock. That's the second coming. The whole world will bow. Things, it says, in heaven, all created beings in heaven, all created beings on earth, all created beings under the earth, buried in the sea or in the land, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and they will bow. That hasn't been done yet, but it will happen. So when you humble yourself in that kind of an attitude, God honors that. Even if a person is martyred for their faith, which seems like total failure, what a waste. Those names are not forgotten. In 
In verses 12 through 18, we have an attitude of application. And the application is now that you know what you have in Christ and you are a church, you're a family, now that you know that, and now that you see what Christ did, what are you willing to do for the family that you're part of similar to what Christ did, not able to match it, but in a similar fashion with humility? He says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So we're supposed to show the awesomeness of our salvation with good works. Now, a lot of people believe if you do good works, then you're saved. And we don't believe that. We believe the Bible teaches that you are saved and out of your salvation, you demonstrate through good works to other people. So you're a testimony to the family. When I see God working in you, I want to hear you tell me that. I want to, I want to hear about it as an encouragement. Do any of you remember when churches used to meet Sunday evenings and people would just stand up and talk about some things that God had been doing in their lives during the past week? Remember how encouraging that was? Tears would come to your eyes. You think, oh, God's working in them too. Oh, and he's working in that person and that one too. It was encouraging. We're supposed to be doing that. We don't have to meet Sunday night to do it, but when we do see each other, we need to have that encouraging thing. You won't believe what God's done this week. Usually what we hear is, I'm failing. I need your help badly. Okay, that's all right. But how about the encouragement? We're supposed to show an awesomeness of our salvation. We do it through generosity. We do it through kindness. We do it by being a good listener so people know they can talk to you. You're not going to interrupt them. We know we can pray for others, and we know that they will ask us to pray for them. And we should do it. We shouldn't just say, oh, I've, I thought about praying for you. Second, we're supposed to show how God is working in us to do his will. God has a higher purpose for our lives than just our jobs and just our mowing the lawn and stuff like that. He has a higher purpose in our lives. And that higher purpose is worked out in how we work within the family. So you're a testimony to the family. You're a witness to those not in the family. You don't witness to the family. We already know who Christ is. But you're a testimony, encouragement. Look at what God is doing. I want to share this with you. We want to show that complaining is not part of our work. Complaining is an affront to God. It's basically saying he does not know what is best for me. It's also saying he will not do things because he's let me struggle and suffer before, so why should I go to him now? We don't always understand why things happen, sometimes not for years. But if you're going to obey, you're going to have to do what God expects. Jesus came here to die on the cross. Because he was God and man, he knew what was coming, but he still had to go through it. The unsaved don't want or need to hear our complaints. We don't need to either. Complain to God. 
but don't complain to each other. It's not an encouraging thing. Next, we're supposed to show that no accusations or wrongdoing can stick by being blameless and harmless. That's a difficult thing in the society in which we live. What it really means is no public sin. Can you ever be sinless? But public sin, you're going to get blamed. You're even going to be in the newspaper maybe. So no public sin. Does that mean private sin is okay? Of course not. It just means that when it's public, everybody knows you've kind of lost your opportunity to be a witness. You kind of lost your opportunity to be a testimony of victory. On the other hand, you can be restored. You can come back. We're supposed to be in contrast to the crooked and perverse world. We're not supposed to mirror it. We're supposed to be a refreshing, shining, bright light in darkness. The similitudes in Matthew talk about we are the salt of the earth. And we're supposed to be lights shining on a hilltop that everybody can see as a beacon. We're not supposed to be in cooperation with the crooked and perverse world, outsmarting people, working shrewd deals where somebody gets shafted so I can win. Somebody comes in to buy a car, an old retired couple. The best buy you have is a 16-passenger maxi van. And you convince them that this is because it's such a great buy, they must have it. And they drive out of there with a 16-passenger maxi van. They needed a Prius. See, that's, there's, that's, somebody says that's good salesmanship. No, that's not honesty. Somebody loses so I can win. No, the Good Samaritan story tells us what it really is. The man is beaten and robbed, and the man that beat the Samaritan had a philosophy, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. A Pharisee comes along and sees it and says, I'm not going to get involved in that. And he goes to the other side of the road and he walks on by. His philosophy is, what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine. That's wrong too. But then the good Samaritan comes by and he sees this poor guy. And he goes over to him and he gives him oil for his wounds, gives him some money puts him on his donkey and sends him to town and tells him to tell the innkeeper to put him up. And his philosophy is, what's yours is yours, and what's mine is yours. That's in contrast. That's as a light in the world. People see that and they say, huh? Peter says, be ready always to give an answer to every Man that asks of the reason of the hope that is within you. We're supposed to hold up the word of life like a billboard. Not carrying signs, but our body, our lifestyle is a billboard, a testimony to what Christ can do in someone's life. Paul says he would like to boast at the judgment seat of Christ. Really, that means to report. The judgment seat of Christ is called the bema. 
And if you go to Greece and you see some of these places where they had the games, you will see a box, a marble box that stood out from the rest of the crowd behind them. And that's where the judges and the royalty sat. And when people raced or whatever, the judgment was given from that box as to how they achieved. We're going to stand before a judgment seat with Christ standing out in a box we have to give an account of our lives before him. Paul says, I would like to give a report about you guys, how great you were. Not how many differences you could find in each other and how you were trying to split the church into little factions and pieces. I want to give a report that's not in vain. I want to know that the time I spent with you before I came to prison was well spent. I want to know that because I sacrificed for my faith, it was all worth it because of your lives. I want to know that I can rejoice no matter what happens to me because of the great things that are happening to you. He says, I hope to be able to come to you someday. I'm glad for the time I spent with you so that I could model what Christ wanted. Then he talks about an attitude of cooperation where he said uh, Timothy was going to be sent back. Timothy, who was like-minded like Paul. Paul was sort of a spiritual father to him. He's going to send Timothy back to report and encourage how great Paul was doing. And as Brian mentioned last week, all the jailers and all the people and all the people in charge of the whole prison situation there all knew that Paul was a Christian. Another man came from Philippi that the church had sent him to encourage Paul. His name was Epaphroditus. I've often wondered about these Greek names. Can you picture that guy in, in a baby carriage? What's his nickname going to be? Pappy? Epappy? Epaphroditus. He's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. He was sent to minister to Paul's needs, but while he was there, he became sick, almost dying. God healed him. And through the healing process and all the influence that was on all of the other prisoners and guards and people connected with it, Paul wanted to send him back to Philippi to encourage them, saying, look, even sick unto death, even me in prison, we've got great news for you, and I'm sending a man back hoping that it will encourage you. He's your missionary. Paul asked them to receive him with joy and honor because of what he had done for Paul. So looking back, we're supposed to have an attitude of unity. We're family. We're supposed to have an attitude of humility like Christ did when he came down from heaven. We're supposed to have an attitude of application, which means how we apply this in our daily living. We're supposed to have an attitude of cooperation with our fellow servants. Do we have work to do? Wow, we do. We've got a lot of work to do. I do. There's a lot of change that's needed. We need a revival. We need to stop complaining about how rotten the country is becoming and all the bad things that are taking place and all the things that are being lost. Those don't matter. What matters is how you're living for the Lord and how God's family is doing. And through the family, changes can take place. Maybe you're here today, and you're not part of the family. Not part of this family, not part of God's family. 
Maybe you're here today because someone invited you or you heard about this. You want to come see what it was, see what we were like. You've heard about the music or you've heard about this and you wanted to see about it, but you're here and you've heard a message from God's word talking about the family. My question is, are you part of the family? What does it take to be part of God's family? It takes an acknowledgement that I'm a sinner, that I believe Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to pay for my sin. And in the best way I know how, I ask him to come in my heart and save me. That's how you become a Christian. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the words of this chapter. Thank you for the meat of it. Thank you for the depth of it. Thank you that it, it isn't light, but it comes right to the core. It pierces. It convicts. We are glad for what we have in Christ. We fail to focus on that sometimes. But if you're here today while we're still praying and you've not become part of God's family, you've heard about it, you know who Christ is, you may be a member of some church somewhere, maybe you were confirmed, but you somehow never have received Christ as your Savior. If that describes you, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, a sample and you can silently in your heart repeat it. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I know it. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And in the best way I know how, I ask him to come into my heart and to save me right now. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I turn my back on my sin. While we're still praying, if you just prayed that prayer and you've never prayed it before, I'm going to include you when I close in prayer in just a minute, but I won't mention you by name. Did you just pray that prayer? Did you just invite Christ to come into your heart? Did you ask him to forgive you for your sin? If you did, Right where you are, everyone's still praying. Just raise your hand so that I can include you when I close in prayer. Anywhere in the auditorium, either side, front or back. Yes, 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 yes. Anyone else? Upstairs? For those people that just raised their hand, no one else, would you look at me? If you raise your hand, did you mean it? Did you mean it? Did you mean it? Okay. And Lord, as we close this portion of our service, we are praying that those that raise their hands today, asking Christ to come in, will come up and speak with me afterwards. For the rest of us, May we be ambassadors. May we have a testimony to each other. May we get to know each other. May we prefer one another 
and treat each other with utmost respect. May we run to each other when we have needs. May we seek you for wisdom. Dismiss us now with your blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.